several weeks ago, it was time for us to go to the bank. So we walked into the bank, my son Luke and I. And while we were waiting in line, another man and his son came into the bank behind us. And Luke looked at the little boy and said, hi, Matthew, how are you? I had never seen this boy before in my life. Didn't know who he was. And I thought, surely my son is confused. I said, do you know him? Do you know him? Yeah, he's been in Sunday school the last two weeks. And now I knew he was very confused because I'd never seen this child before in my life. So I said, now, I, I think you're confused. I don't, I don't think that's who you think it is. No, no, I know him. How are you? How are you? He insists on keeping talking to this kid. And I, you know, his, well, I'm thinking to myself, what must his father be thinking? My son, my crazy son, assaulting his own son here in the bank with friendliness, Right. So uh, this goes back and forth for a long time. No, no, he was in Sundays. I know him. How are you? How are you? I, Luke, please be quiet. Come over and stand with me. Come over. Finally, his father intervened and said, no, we've been visiting your church the last two weeks. What do you say at a moment like that? Well, come back because we sure like visitors at our church. There's nothing that can be said. Can you recover from that? Uh, well, everybody's had experience like that. Haven't you had something like that happen to you where you've, you've come up short? You end up in a situation where you're uh, not dressed appropriately for an occasion or you say something or you do something that's just not right, just doesn't match the situation. Maybe it happens to you at the hardware store. Uh, it's a Saturday morning, so you get up early and, and you're going to do a lot of work in your lawn uh, outside. Inside, you have a lot of projects, so you get up and you don't take a shower. You just put your grubbiest clothes on and you don't shave. And, and you go out and you start working it and you're just sweaty and gross. And you're trying to fix your lawnmower and you figure out, oh, I, there's a part I need. Um, so you think to yourself, well, I'll only be in Lowe's for a few minutes so um, you, you get in your car. If your teenagers knew you were going out in public dressed the way you are, they would stop you, but you ignored all that. And, and you get in the car and you drive to the hardware store and you're sneaking around looking for the part that you need and you turn the corner and there in aisle number three making eye contact with you is your 11th grade English teacher. The woman who wrote on the top of your last paper, uh, you have great potential. I can't wait to see what you accomplish in life. <laughs> This woman that you admired and loved and who, who transformed your education. And there you are with uh, uh, face to face. You have dirt on your clothes. You have grease on, on your hands and your, your uh, oil smudges everywhere. If, if only you had known, right, that you were going to run into her. You would have prepared and you wouldn't have come up short. This morning, I want to unfold a passage of scripture for you that might catch you off guard. In fact, uh, if we read this text right, it's a jolting moment in the Bible. Uh, it catches us. It, it makes us stop and blink and, and ponder. It's the third series in a, in a series of it's the third story in a series of narratives in the book of Leviticus. And it has to do with the Old Testament priests. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Leviticus, chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. What I want to do is I want to read the first couple of verses of this chapter. We're eventually going to read all of it. And then I want to uh, ask a couple questions that the text answers or raises for us. Then we're going to go back and look at the context before unfolding the rest of the chapter. But let's start with this coming up short story. This is 
of significantly different quality or uh, 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 weight than not being appropriately dressed at the hardware store. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. This is what the text says. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. This is the first day that Aaron and his sons are carrying out their priestly duty. This is day one and something goes wrong. Suddenly two of the men are dead by fire from God's presence. It's a very solemn occasion. They're carrying these little containers of incense up into the tabernacle. And before they get there and before anyone knows what's happening, fire comes out of the tent of meeting and consumes them. And and there they left. Uh, Their bodies are left smoking on the ground and their priestly garments, their beautiful priestly garments, are, are charring. You probably have questions about this text. You should have questions about this text. What, what exactly did they do? This, this doesn't sound like something that, that would merit the, the death penalty like that. Uh, what, why was God so harsh toward them? What does this, what does this passage reveal about God himself? Um, what does this mean for the priesthood and Aaron? Uh, Here's, here's a question that, that I have. Could something like this happen again? Would, would God ever do this again? If so, h- how do we avoid this happening? Those are, those are good questions. Let me step back, step back for a minute and pick up the context of this book. You know, we're reading these days Leviticus, which is the worship manual of the Old Testament Israel nation of Israel. This is the family that God has rescued from slavery in Egypt, and he's going to make them his own people. They're going to have the greatest privilege of any nation on earth. God is going to move in among them. He's going to dwell with them. First, he's going to dwell with them in a tent uh, called the tabernacle or here the tent of meeting. And then eventually uh, when when Solomon builds a a permanent building, he's going to move into this building, the, the temple. God's going to take up residence. He moves in with them. And this is, a, this is a huge privilege. They are going to be blessed beyond their wildest dreams as God moves in with them. The New Testament picks up on this in the book of John. In John 1, Jesus is described as tabernacling among the people. That is, God in the form of... Uh, in in, uh, taking on the likeness of a human being, he moves in with people. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he talk about how we become the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moves in uh, and, and he indwells us, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, underlying all of the rituals and the laws and the practices in the book of Leviticus uh, are the twin ideas that God is holy and the people are unholy. This is the God who is moving in. He is different. 
And the original readers of this text had to get this. They had to understand this. And the whole book of Leviticus is devoted to this idea. You must understand God is holy and you are not holy. The first seven chapters, we started this in January, didn't we? We have been talking about the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system where there was bloody animals everywhere to remind the people God is holy and you are not. Then in chapters 8 through 10, there's a section devoted to the priesthood. Because God is holy and we are unholy, we need a mediator. We need someone to represent us. Uh, In September, we're going to come back and look at chapters 11 through 16. We're going to learn how holiness and unholiness affects what the people eat and wear and how they farm all of life. Now, the word holiness... Uh, And the word holy are not words that we generally use positively, not in our culture. Again, uh, the most popular phrase is, you are holier than thou, which is not a compliment, is it? Um, Since uh, the word holiness, its basic meaning is is separate, we tend to think about uh, how this separates for us from God, a God who is apparently angry and critical and picky and cruel and perfectionistic. Now, I've been trying to speak, since we started in the book of Leviticus, uh, I've been trying to, to talk about the word holiness in its positive meaning. Holiness means that God is separate, he's distinct from us, he is distinct and unique uh, beyond creation in his goodness, in his beauty, in his power, in his love. This is the chapter, though, that shows the flip side of, of that coin, the flip side of God's goodness. God is so good so holy that he is committed to eradicating what is not good, what is not true, what is not loving, what is not beautiful. A holy God is a God who judges definitively and decisively. Uh, This is a chapter about the role that the priests have in teaching and, and leading the people to acknowledge and worship the holy God. That's the center of this passage. The center of the passage, the key to understanding it, is in verses 8 through 11. This is what the priests are supposed to do. Uh, But the priests, this command in verses 8 through 11 is surrounded by a failure to do what they're supposed to do. And then it's it's bracketed on the other end by a uh, success in in this. Now, what I want to do is is I want to, as we go through this passage, I want to move in three different directions. and, And I've tried to summarize these three directions with some summary headings. So here, here's the first one. Here's the first thing that I want you to notice from this text. Number one, our responsibility to present God accurately in worship. Our responsibility to present God accurately in worship. That's the point of this passage. It's what the high priests were supposed to do, the priestly family was supposed to do, and it's what we're supposed to do when we gather together to worship. We're supposed to present God accurately as we meet together. Um, let's, let's look at verses 8 through 11, shall we here? Uh, follow along with me as I read. Then the Lord said to Aaron, uh, this is the only place in the book of Leviticus where God speaks directly to Aaron. Everywhere else he speaks to Moses and then to Aaron. The Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. 
And he's reminding, the Lord is reminding Aaron what he and his sons are supposed to be doing. This is the mission of the priests and involves two verbs, two verbs in this text. They are to distinguish and they are to teach. They are to distinguish and teach. First of all, to distinguish. They're to distinguish among four categories. Verse 10. Verse 10 is really important for unfolding the rest of Leviticus. You're supposed to distinguish between what is holy and common and between what is unclean and clean. Uh, actually, this is, we'll come back to this again because in verses, chapters 11 through 16, that's what chapters 11 through 16 are about. Distinguishing between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. That is holy. The things that belong to God. The things that are God's in particular and marked out for Him. And if something is not holy, then it is common. Your translation might say profane, uh, but profane in our culture is a, it means a, a swear word or something to be rejected. That's not it. Uh, it's just common. It's just not, doesn't belong to God. It's in particular someone else's. Distinguish between what's holy and what's common and between what's clean, that is what's ritually pure and can go in God's presence, and what's unclean, what's not ritually pure. And the priests were supposed to make judgments about this. This is their role before the peoples. They're supposed to speak to them about what's holy and what's not and what's clean and what's, what's not. Um, this calls for sober, no pun intended, sober reflection, which is why they can't drink alcohol when they're on the job. Right? That's, that's why verse 8 says, be very careful don't to drink, not to drink wine because you have to make these distinctions. You have to distinguish. You need a clear mind. This text also teaches them to teach. It tells them that they're supposed to teach. Um, you must teach the Israelites as all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. That is, take what you know and teach it to the people. The Israelites will look to you for guidance, for help, for wisdom and worship and living that pleases God. This role, distinguishing and teaching, these are priorities that we still have as followers of Jesus Christ. Understanding what pleases God and teaching people. Um, this distinguishing task, this, this uh, task of separating or marking out what's holy as opposed to what's common is one of the reasons, it speaks very deeply to the, the Christian worldview, this is one of the reasons that we're not pantheists. Pantheists are people who believe that, that God is a part of all creation. Everything is God. God is everything. Uh, there's God in the tree and God in you and God in me and God in the wood and God in the breeze and God everywhere. Um, that is pantheism. It's not Christianity. There is a distinction between creator and creation. This, uh, this task of distinguishing and making distinctions is one of the reasons that we talk about male and female the way we do. God made two distinct uh, beings, creatures, two distinct forms of humanity who represent him, who image him. And there are males and there are females and they are distinct and they are not interchangeable. This is why we talk about marriage and sex and gender in some of the ways that we do. Uh, God is a God who distinguishes. And, and we uphold this. Males should act like males and females should act like females. We are about this business of distinguishing. This is what the priests were supposed to do. And as I said, this is this timeless priority for God's 
people. This is something that's supposed to concern us all. We're supposed to live and speak in such a way that God, that we accurately reflect who God is, what God is like, how God has made the world to function. People receive this. When you speak this, it sounds restraining. It sounds conflicting. It sounds uh, negative. You say to someone, that's not what God intended when he made you. It's not what God intended when he made the world. Well, who's God to tell me what to do with my life? I can do what I want with my life. We're coming to people and we're saying, the God who made you who is good has designed life to work this way. And it's good news that we can tell people this. Now, this passage is about worship, so I want to think for a few minutes uh, with you about worship. Again, I'm, I'm concerned, what do we do when we're, as a congregation, gathering together? Our corporate meetings... When we gather together as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to speak truthfully about who God is. Our services should accurately reflect him. What we do, why we do it, how we say it. Uh, I want to show you that that's a a principle, a priority that's not just here in Leviticus 10. In fact, it was very important to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 22 to 25. Look what it says. Tongues. Then, now, we start with tongues. This is in one of the most controversial passages of the New Testament. He's talking about tongues. We're not going to talk about tongues today. When I finish the book of Leviticus, Lord willing, sometime in 2014, uh, we're going to move into the book of Acts. And when we get to the book of Acts, we'll talk about tongues in more detail. We're not going to do that um, today. What I want you to see, though, is what Paul expects worship to do, to be like. All right, look what it says. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What's supposed to happen when we gather together for worship? We are to worship in such a way so that someone who comes in would not say to us, You and your God, you're all nuts. That's not the goal. Instead, the goal is when someone comes in, they should say, your God is awesome. He's he's stunning. He's amazing. Your reverence for him, the clarity with which you speak and sing his truth. Your your God, he is he is amazing. The evident joy that you have in him. He is awesome. That's that worship should accurately reflect him. That's what's supposed to happen when we gather together. Now, Paul continues here in verses 29 through 33. Look at what he says in first Corinthians 14. Here's some rules that he has for uh, worship. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy, prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Again, the way they were to worship was to testify about the truthfulness of God. Accurately reflect him that he's a God of peace not a God of disorder. 
So people come to our worship services and they say, your God is awesome and he loves peace. (laughs) Those things. Now, this passage presses us on why we do some of the things that we do and how. It, it determines some of the choices that we make in our worship. Our worship should reflect the values that we hold. It should point people to the truths that we believe. And, and thinking about this, you can understand some of the ways that our church differs from others. Uh, Some congregations very consciously design their meetings to feel and seem like concerts. This is becoming more and more prevalent in worship services. It's like a concert. Uh, and, And their meetings have all the atmosphere of a concert. Stage lighting, fog machines, cameramen that focus on the performers on on the stage. Uh, They turn the auditorium lights off, so it's very dark in the... um, uh, auditorium and the stage lights are on and they're very, very bright. It's, it's a concert. Now, why would a church make a decision to do that? Uh, probably for a variety of reasons. One, maybe it helps some people feel more comfortable. Church, churches, right, church is stuffy and cold and distant. Concerts, on the other hand, are free and easy and happy. Uh, we haven't made those choices. Um, we don't believe that it is commensurate with what the Bible teaches about what our meetings are for. We turn the lights on, except in the fellowship hall. We're going to work on that. Um, we want to see other people when we worship. We want to hear other people sing when we worship. Our songs are in a key that you should be able to sing. We value congregational singing because we gather together because God tells us to meet with one another, to encourage one another by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when the keyboardists stop playing, you're singing, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to hear other people. Uh, at, a, at a concert, um, you watch other people perform. You see them perform. Um, our musicians are not like performers. They're more like pitchers. Um, that is, uh, when you come into church, you get into the batter's box and you stand and our musicians, they play a, a wonderful introduction. That's the wind up. And then they throw it to you. And your job is to swing at the song and sing. That, that's what you do. You act. Um, Aaron and his sons were to study and teach and help the people understand what God is like. And we're to do the same. We're to ensure that everything that we do reflects God accurately. Now, this, cares, this calls for some really careful thinking. And, and we're, not, we're not always great at that. The greatest temptation for us when we gather together is that, is that we can do things by rote, without thinking about them, according to tradition. That can lead to laziness. Sometimes when we gather together, it's easy to think when we plan or think about what's going to happen in our service, the priority can be what's going to make people happy? What's going to satisfy people? What am I going to get the least complaints about if we sing this song in that way? What's what's going to satisfy everybody? What's going to try to not not embroil us anymore in the worship wars. What can I pick that's safe for us to do, for us to see, for us to experience? I'm not sure that Leviticus 10 encourages us to think about what makes people comfortable or happy or safe. 
Uh, last week, we had a technical disaster with the lyrics. You were here for the first song we were singing. For some reason, the computer screen went blank. I have no idea what was happening. Uh, demonic possession. I don't know. Something was going on. This happens sometimes. We have technical disasters at times. But you know uh, what happens when, when that happens? I just I cringe. What do people think about the God we worship and the value we place on him when these things happen? Sometimes thoughtless worship is sloppy or, or haphazard. If our prayers always sound the same or if we read the Bible like it's an unfamiliar newspaper article, we failed. If, if you lead us in prayer, think about it. Make, make notes. What aspect of God's character are you going to honor? What uh, sins do we need to confess? What countries in the news need prayer? What churches in our community uh, need prayer? What are the needs of the people? How can you pray about our role as a congregation in Lancaster County? Prepare to read the Bible. Is the passage a happy one? Is it a sad one? Is there things that need to be emphasized? We, we accurately reflect God. We strive to accurately reflect God when we worship. Last week I mentioned that one of the strengths of our building is that it doesn't lend itself to confusing aesthetic expression with worship. Uh, that is, you're not tempted to walk into the building and say, wow, God is awesome. Um, that, that, that's a strength, but someone pressed me about this after the service. What does our building itself say about God? What does it say about him? He likes white. <laughs> um, uh, uh, those, are, those are not unimportant questions. What does the building say about God? That's not an unimportant question to ask. Without a doubt, the, the greatest issue here that we have in this quest to represent God accurately comes about in the teaching. Jordan read from the book of Jude today about false teachers. That's the, the chief thought that we have when we gather together. It's the responsibility of all of us. Galatians 1 says, if somebody comes to your church and he is not, he is not preaching the gospel, don't listen to him. All of you have that responsibility. It's in particular the responsibility of elders. Titus chapter 1. They're to uh, rebuke those who teach contrary to the gospel. We don't, when we open God's word, proclaim a God who is merely the one who has come to meet your needs and help you fulfill your potential. We proclaim the God who is sovereign, to whom you owe everything, and in whom you are to find the highest joy. Now, at the center of Leviticus 10, that's what's at the center of Leviticus 10. This call to accurately represent God in worship. And the reason that call is here in 8 through 11 is because of the failure that takes place early in this chapter. And that's what I want us to look at next here, the second direction to think about this text. The failure to uh, present God accurately in worship. And that's what, partly what I read already with Nadab and Abihu. Now, I wish that these verses were more detailed. Frankly, I'm not exactly sure what Nadab and Abihu did. Uh, the text says in verse 1 that they offered unauthorized fire. What is that? Before the service, Bob Kobe told me they were telling too many jokes in the pulpit. <laughs> I don't think that's it. Um, somehow uh, they, were, they were violating the Lord's command. What they were supposed to do is, 
Uh, they had a mixture of incense, and the Bible tells us what the recipe was for that incense. And they were to put it in a, a metal container. They were to take coals from the altar that God himself had lit and put it in these little censers, these little metal containers, put the incense on top of it, and carry that into the tabernacle. Apparently what happened is uh, maybe they got the coals from somewhere else. They didn't get the coals from the altar. They got coals uh, I, somewhere else. I don't know why. Um, Maybe, maybe um, they uh, were drunk. Maybe that's the, the admonition of verse 11, don't drink. Maybe Nadab and Abihu were drunk and they didn't know what they were doing, so they made mistakes and took unauthorized fire. Um, maybe they were introducing some sort of pagan element. They, maybe they, they got the, the coals from a pagan altar somewhere and brought them in, and they wanted people to feel comfortable and welcome in the services, so they brought in the paganism so that it would be fine as they carried it uh, into the, the tent of meeting. I, I don't know. Uh, regardless, they violated God's commands very, very clearly. This breaks the pattern of chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 8, God speaks, Moses obeys. Moses speaks, Aaron obeys. Chapter 9, Moses speaks, Aaron obeys. Chapter 10, God speaks, and Nadab and Abihu disobey. Break the pattern here of these chapters. And this revolts, results in severe, severe judgment. Huh. Uh, we're not shy about talking about God's judgment in our church. We talk about it. Um, this is still a jarring passage of Scripture. Listen to what Gordon Wenham wrote. He said this, In many parts of the church, the biblical view of divine judgment is conveniently forgotten or supposed to be something that passed away with the Old Testament. Uh, Heinz, Foster, famous last words, God will forgive me, that's his job, have become the unexpressed axiom of modern theology. This short story, therefore, is an affront to common thinkers. It should also challenge Bible-believing Christians whose theological attitudes are influenced by prevailing trends of thought more often than they realize. This is, this is serious. This passage tells us God's priorities for this situation. Verse 3, this is what the Lord speaks when, he, when we gather together. Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. God will be honored as holy among his people, especially those who lead. God is unwilling to allow his holy commands so, so recently given to be ignored. Uh, this, is, this is perhaps the verse that we should start our services with every week, isn't it? Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. It's a hard passage. Some of you have questions about Aaron's silence. He, he's prohibited in these verses from mourning. His sons have just been charred before him, and he's prohibited from mourning. Look, look at what verses 4 says, uh, how this happens. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then continues, Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, these are the brothers of Nadab and Abihu, Do not let your hair become unkempt, and do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. 
Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Aaron, your sons have died. You cannot grieve. You stay here. You stay at your post. You're the high priest. Everybody else can grieve. You may not mourn. Why not? Why couldn't he? How could he not? His sons have been executed before him. How could he not respond at all? The reason he was commanded not to is because as high priest, he belonged chiefly to God first. High priests are not allowed to touch dead bodies. And and here's this expression of what Jesus said later. Remember, Jesus said, if you love your family more than you love me, you're not worthy of following me. And here's a time when Aaron has to choose very publicly and visibly. I am on God's side, despite what my family does. If, if Aaron had, had mourned, maybe some of the people would have, would have thought, um, maybe, uh, maybe they would have thought that, that Aaron was critical of God or that, that he thought God um, had, had, made a, had been, made a mistake. And Aaron is very clearly, by not mourning, showing the people that he is on God's side. I wonder if, if for those of you who are parents, how this strikes you. Last week was Mother's Day. Charles Spurgeon uh, often wrote about how his mother prayed for him. Every Sunday night, Charles Spurgeon's mother would gather her children together and teach them the Bible. And this is one of the times she prayed. Charles Spurgeon's mother prayed this. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. That's a serious way to pray, isn't it? That'll do something to you if you hear your mother praying that way. This is Aaron. His demeanor is bearing swift witness against his children that they deserve what God has done. Those are sobering words. Last week, uh, Jessica Harrison prayed for mothers bearing the burden of loving prodigal sons and daughters. Don't rush past this passage. You're going to bear witness against them someday at the day of judgment. Why? Because God will be honored as holy among his people. There are sobering words for those who lead our congregation. What kind of atmosphere are we trying to create as, as we gather together? We tell a lot of jokes during announcements. That's fine. But then we start. Very clearly, we start. We want joy and gladness. We want truth and honesty. We want gravity and, and clarity. We don't want happy, clappy entertainment. We want to engage in, in what's happening in the songs that are singing. So, so we need pitches served that we can hit. Uh-huh. Um, uh, maybe if I can return to my earlier analogy, uh, maybe this is more like batting practice than a game. Right? The pitcher's trying to give us something that we can, can swing at. The musicians throw these pitches we can hit, that we can engage in. So that's why we don't sing in Chinese or in Hebrew or in uh, ancient uh, Gregorian chants. But woe to us if the elements of our worship are more about entertaining than about anything else. Be careful. Oh, be careful. Be careful what you expect and what you long for and what you look for when we gather together. Because God will be honored as holy 
There are some, some congregations who make the choice that because they, they, they think it, it, it's relevant, it's striking, that they uh, began a, a couple of years ago, there were a couple of congregations who became well-known, some in the South, for starting their Easter services with hard rock songs about hell. They, they, their band performs them. And this is the way we're going to start our service, and it shows how relevant we are. The unauthorized fire? You, you, you can start a service here at our church if you want to. You will have to kill me first. This is a terrible failure. It's, it's terrible failure. But even in the midst of this failure, there's, there's grace. I want you to continue with me finally here. A renewal in presenting God accurately in worship. This is what happens in verses 12 through 20. It's a tragic beginning to the Aaronic priesthood. This is day one. What's going to happen on day two? If this happens so suddenly to the mediator, is there any hope for the nation? Yes, there is, because there is grace. And here's how that happens. In verses 12 through 15, uh, Moses um, tells the, pre- the, the priests that they're still supposed to eat their, their, their part of the, the sacrifices. You know, remember that priests were to receive to eat part of the sacrifices. They still were to get that. Moses said to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, take the grain offering left over from the offerings made to the Lord by fire and eat it. Prepared without yeast before the altar, for it is most holy. Eaten in a holy place, because it is your share and your son's share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. For so I have been commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. Eat them in a ceremonially clean place. They have been given to you and your children as your share of the Israelites' fellowship offerings. And the text continues. They, they still were to get, there's grace, even though your family has totally failed here, there's still grace, because you still get these parts. Uh, God isn't begrudging, he isn't standing up in heaven saying, well, you really messed up, I'm not sure if you're going to get the portion you're supposed to. God is still very clearly saying to them, no, take it and eat it, it is yours, I have given it to you. That's, that's grace. And then... Uh, Aaron shows his ability to distinguish what's right and wrong. Look look at the the text, verses 16 and following. When Moses inquired about the goat of the sin offering and found that it had been burned up, he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? Sanctuary area. It is most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. You should have eaten it. Now, Aaron says, verse 19, Today they sacrifice their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, but such things as this have happened to me. Would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten that sin offering today? And when Moses heard this, he was satisfied. Moses was angry because they didn't eat the meat they were supposed to, but in the end, he's satisfied with Aaron's reasoning. Why? Um, because Aaron says, I just did not think it was appropriate in light of how much we failed today to eat this, to take advantage of this, to, to even be seen as, as sharing in the joy of this sacrificial time. So I chose not to eat it. Aaron did not eat the meat out of reverence for the Lord, which Moses says is an acceptable exception. Aaron is learning, he is demonstrating that he can distinguish. 
As is always the case here, God's people are depending upon his grace. We don't live up to our ideals in worship. If you're a visitor here this morning, trust me, we never get this right. We believe that the God of the Bible is far more glorious than we can portray. We have skilled people who participate in our services, but not skilled enough because God is always better. We're always in need of God's grace. And hence our our need for a mediator, too. One better than Nadab and Abihu. Remember, we're reading the book of Leviticus in reverse. We're reading it backwards. Jesus Christ is the perfect priest. Let's put him in the story. Jesus Christ comes uh, with a censer, like Nadab and Abihu. Here he comes with a censer, and he's carrying it into the the tent of meeting, into the holy, holy place. And, and Jesus, by his very life, testifies the fact he is the perfect priest. He has followed all the commands. He's done absolutely everything right. And we see him walking into the tent of meeting. And what happens? He still is executed. The fire still comes out and consumes him. Why? How could this be? The reason is, we know from the Gospels and the Epistles, that Jesus Christ bears God's fiery wrath on the cross. It's a tragic injustice if you followed all the rules and you go to the tent of meeting to be struck dead. That's a tragic injustice, except for the fact that Jesus, in obedience to his Father, went on our behalf, representing us, and God's fiery wrath was poured out on him for our sin, so that everybody who looks to him by faith might be saved. We're not surprised to read in the pages of the Bible how God's people fail him. But what should stun us is the grace of our Lord. That's why our careful attention to worship is so reasonable, so logical, so justified. It is our response to this God, this holy God, who is also our great Savior. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence this morning and and we want to have in our minds this ringing of your voice. I will be honored among those who draw near to me. Again, Lord, we confess to you that we are, we fail often in our honoring of you. We represent you poorly at times, thoughtlessly, lazily. Father, how, how, can, we, how can we approach you uh, in, in light of what happened in Nadab and Abihu? Oh, thank you for the Lord Jesus who represents us. Even in our best praying, we need an intercessor to say, forgive, forgive, forgive. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who does that for us. And help us, Father, when we gather together, that we would be people who come to, to gladly respond to you, the God who is holy and who will be glorified and honored in our midst. Help us to confuse people, not because of how cool we try to be. Help us to confuse those who come because of the high regard we hold for you, the great reverence we have for our awesome God. Make us that sort of congregation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.